Welcome to The Advertising Show, America's only radio program focusing on advertising, media, marketing, product development, branding, new media, sales and customer relations. Stay with us for entertaining marketing discussion and our special guest interview. Now, here are your hosts, Ray Shillins and Brad Forsyth. Hey, thanks so much for listening. It's The Advertising Show and another encore show for you because we know you love them. The Advertising Show is being brought to you by... Advertising Age Magazine. Visit online at adage.com. The Advertising Show, a copyrighted Big Radio Midgets production. Nick Covey was with us just a few years ago. Nick leads global corporate social responsibility and sustainability at Nielsen. In that capacity, he drives Nielsen's CSR strategy, including its pro bono activity, as a global provider of information and insights. Nick joined Nielsen in 05 after stints in strategic research and marketing at HGTV, the Food Network, and ESPN. A, a real colorful background and a great interview. Enjoy it here at the Advertising Show. Hey, Ray. Hey, Brad. Great to be here. Thank you for the very kind introduction. Very good. I think our uh, Nielsen ratings, Ray, are going up as we yeah, speak. Yeah, I'm, I'm Nick plugging the numbers right now. Uh, what do you know? There you guys go. Thanks. And, uh, I don't, uh, not quite measuring the podcast just yet. Can but. we do a weekly feature with you then? That, that's yeah, what we need. Yeah, <laughs> that's the surest way to, no, I, I have to say that is not a good way to boost your rating. No. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> mostly, be, yeah, we'll see uh, whether I'm that in, in, engaging, I suppose, and we'll talk a lot about engagement. Well, that's, we, sure. We're off to a good start here. Brad, what do you have? Yeah, well, uh, Nick, just to get us started, let's talk a little bit about uh, your job as Director of Cross-Platform Insights for Nielsen. You've managed a wide range of research and analysis across a number of areas. I'm curious, how do you guys determine which areas of interest you're going, uh, that are going to be studied? Our, our business plan and our areas of growth are entirely driven by our clients' interests, right? So we are, at, at heart, many of us, myself included, researchers who are, are curious and uh, particularly about the media ecosystem in the U.S. and abroad. And it'd be very easy for us to start researching things that were just of interest to us, uh, but we'd, we'd be heading down all sorts of paths which might not be of interest to our clients. Primarily, the, the areas that we gravitate toward are those areas that have a lot of promise as an advertising vehicle. Uh, video games, still just an emerging advertising platform, but a lot of promise down the down the road. Obviously, mobile, sports sponsorships, uh, an area that I cover is an area that uh, we saw that could have even more advertising involved and more sponsorship uh, and, and done with a higher degree of science than has been done historically. And so uh, it's a very long-term process where we have a pretty good sense what we're going to be looking closely at over the next few years. Uh, but it involves a constant dialogue with our clients about what's most interesting and most urgent to them. Yeah, makes sense. Uh, Nielsen recently completed a study entitled Changing Models, a Global Perspective on Paying for Content. Before we get into discussing some of the specific uh, findings, specific in a general sense, I'd like to get a high level from you about the study for, for example, uh, survey participants, methodology, et cetera. Sure. Yeah, that, that's a fantastic question. So the the study that we put out just uh, a couple months back on uh, you know, monetizing online content, people's willingness to pay for co- online content, was probably the biggest study of its kind in its global scale. We reached out to 27,000 consumers around the globe, 54 countries represented, and we asked them about their attitudes toward paying for different types of online content, their attitudes toward paying for online content in general, uh, and, and and which content types they had already paid for. And what it yielded was a really interesting paper, which is available at Nielsen.com, on 
the uh, the things that we believe, based on this survey, people are going to be willing to pay for in the next few years, things that they told us they'd be willing to pay for. And then the areas that we, uh, that we need to think about, uh, the, the concerns that consumers have, things like uh, they want to be able to share their content if they pay for it, and things like that that uh, really bubble up very quickly when you ask these consumers how they feel about the subject. Sure. You know, I think there were a lot of people speculating. There, there continue to be a lot of people speculating about uh, as, as some online content properties realize that advertising alone may not support their, their business model, that they're going to need to put up paywalls. We were all speculating about how consumers felt about that, and we thought, why not just go out and ask them? So it was an online survey to 27,000-plus uh, consumers like I said, across 54 countries. And, uh, That's huge. Uh, and, and the fact that they are online consumers is important because many of the countries represented are emerging markets where uh, the population of online consumers is smaller, uh, but we thought the most important people to ask would be, of course, those with Internet access. You know, so often we hear of sample sizes and are suspect of that. 27,000, my goodness, what a, what a wonderful uh, yeah, That's sample. a big number, folks. Yeah, yeah really. Yeah. Yeah, uh, and, 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 as, and as, you can you can accomplish good research for it with smaller sample sizes, but when you're looking at getting it across that many countries and when you want to compare one country to another, what it turns out being is you really need at least 500 respondents in every country. And, and these, I, I didn't mention the age, but these are all respondents 15 and older. And, of course, that's relative, I'm sure, to the actual country size itself, and that 500 number would expand or, or, or get larger for larger markets such as U.S. or whatever, correct? Yeah, correct. To some extent it does, and then there's a waiting process at the end of that as well where we, we wait the respondents to be representative of the ages of the, of the population that, that we're trying to capture. Makes sense. As many uh, as many probably expected, a majority of consumers, some eighty five percent, according to your study, prefer that content remain free. However, as they say, the devil really is in the details when it comes to the type of content consumers would be willing to pay for. Take us through, uh, as you mentioned earlier, some of the type of online content consumers are willing to pay for versus that which consumers are not so ready to pay for. Sure. What, what we found, uh, to some extent surprisingly, some not, what we found is that consumers are more inclined to pay for the types of content that have a higher production value perceived is really how we look at the results. We see that at the top of the list of the content that people have either paid for already or are willing to pay for, we find music, we find theatrical movies, video games, content that is uh, content which they are already paying for offline and to some extent online and content which has a high degree of production value. If you go to the other end of the spectrum, we find that consumers almost universally are not interested in paying for content that is consumer-generated, things like blogs, consumer-generated video, and to some extent news, uh, perhaps uh, to, to your chagrin, I should mention, uh, to some extent even news, uh, talk radio, things like that uh, are, are content that consumers seem to perceive uh, as having a lower production cost uh, and therefore are less inclined to pay for online. Wow. You know, uh, over the years, uh, we've seen magazines and even newspapers, for that matter, attempt to link their paid traditional content to an online paid model with, I should say, varying degrees of success. What did your study find, and what advice would you give those in print media that are struggling with the challenge of revenue generation for their online content? I think the, the most exciting takeaway of the study for me, was that consumers are willing to pay for some content. If you just ask them up front, 
do you want to pay for content? Should content be free? Of course they're going to say, and they did say when we asked them, but we had to ask them anyway. They said, no, I don't want to pay for it. No, content should be free. But like you said, the devil's in the details. When we start asking about some of these subjects, we find that the consumers understand there is a trade-off between uh, the value of content. By and large, they understand that some, something's got to pay for it, either advertising or subscription. Magazines are, are existing. They, they kind of fall in the middle of that spectrum I talked about earlier. They're, they're not quite up as high as music and games or professionally produced video, but they're not down with blogs and, and consumer-generated videos, uh, which tells me that in, in the magazine space in particular, which um, you, know, you guys talked about this a little bit in the open, uh, about the success of magazines online, the, in the magazine space in particular, we're going to need to have flexible models of monetization. There are going to need to be ways to allow consumers to either access the content through advertising uh, supported means or to access the content through a premium means. That's, that's not an entirely new concept, this idea of having a set of free information and then behind that a paywall. Sure. But I think how we have to think about it is that that free information uh, and the paywall, there may even be a third tier. There may be what's free available just by showing up to the site. There may be what's available for access if I pay a subscription or a micropayment structure. And, and what's available in the middle ground, if I give you a lot of information about me and allow you to target messages to me from your marketers and your partners that are highly relevant to me. And I think there will be a subset of consumers out there, whether it's for magazines or other types of content, who say, I don't want to pay, uh, but I want more than I get when I just show up. So here's what you should know about me, and here are the types of ads that I want to see. And I, I think that kind of model has a lot of promise. And then when it comes to paying, that, that third premium tier, I mentioned micropayments versus subscriptions, that's also an important component of having a flexible model of monetization. I think that uh, any online content provider is going to have to think about how do I enable my customers to either subscribe or to pay on a per piece of content basis. By and large, uh, what consumers told us in this survey on a global scale is that they tend to prefer that micropayment structure, that they tend to prefer the ability to come in and say, this is an article that's interesting to me. I think that they are saying that a bit in spirit, uh, more than what's available today, yeah. uh, because there aren't a lot of great micropayment systems available right now, right? But uh, I think that if you give them an easy tool to say, hey, I'll give you 50 cents or 25 cents for this article uh, without entering my credit card number every time, that, that may well be a successful model. I'm glad that you asked for Brad's credit card uh, information before we start the show to the book. I love it. On the advertising show is Ray Schiller's Brad Forsyth, a penniless Brad Forsyth. Uh, Nick Covey is our special guest out of Chicago, director of Cross-Platform Insights at the Nielsen Company. And uh, we'll continue. Of course we will here in just a moment on the advertising show. You're listening to The Advertising Show with Ray Schillens and Brad Forsyth. Did a headache spoil a day for you? Are you still feeling a little miserable and upset? Well, of course, it would have been... You better believe it. We'll continue here at the Advertising Show with Ray Shillings and Brad Forsyth out of uh, Chicago, Nick Covey, Director of Cross-Platform Insights, the Nielsen Company. You know, Nick, your your bio has uh, that you work uh, with uh, sport uh, marketing and sports sponsorships and, and such like that. I think, you know, it's interesting because... You don't think of sports uh, marketing as being something new. Obviously, there are new venues and new opportunities, but it goes back to the, uh, you know, to the uh, the billboards they used to have out in left field or something many many years ago when they started. So, what is new in, in sports marketing here? Yeah, you're spot on. It goes back to those billboards, and and my first job at Nielsen 
when I joined, I guess now about five years ago from the Food Network and Home and Garden Television, was focused on those sports sponsorships. And it's been some time since I've been involved with it day to day. But the exciting thing that, that we've done, we're doing at the time, is to start thinking about sports sponsorships in the stadium sponsorship signage as having value beyond what is seen in the stadium. Uh, to those of us in the media system who are familiar with digital media and audience metrics, uh, it's kind of a surprise that that's not how advertising was, was necessarily bought and sold. But to, to a large extent, in-stadium advertising was being sold, uh, A, off of relationships, a handshake and a beer at a game, but, but also by saying, here's how many people will cycle through the stadium. I think the, there's still a lot of room for growth in the sports sponsorship arena if we start thinking about when that program is seen on television, if that, if that outdoor signage is placed appropriately, it has tremendous amount of value on screen. If you start thinking about it just like a product placement, like you think about a product placement in a primetime television show, mm-hmm. there's a lot of value there. And what we've done is tried to start helping our customers monetize that and figure out what the, what the value is every time that sign is seen on TV. You know, I think the one thing that kills me about sports marketing is the naming of stadiums, and I know that is an incredibly uh, uh, opportune, uh, you know, good opportunity for uh, for sponsorships. But it, it just kills me, you know, as, as opposed to the ballpark at Union Station or the, you know, Fenway Park or something like that, where it's now the progressive insurance and uh, car and truck insurance. Uh, yeah, I, I, certainly there are purists out there, and it's, you know, the same the same idea could be applied across model, you know, people who, uh, myself included, to, you know, love the purity of a, of a ballpark that doesn't bear a corporate name, but, but I think what um, those teams could do a better job explaining to people, and we could all do a better job appreciating, is that uh, those sponsorships are really what is enabling the the vast infrastructure improvements to these stadiums. Uh, it's enabling the um, you know these teams to catch up with the digital age and these stadiums to catch up with the digital age. And um, you know, done done tactfully uh, is clearly our best advice. And that's another thing that we've we've done through this research is to help teams understand and, and help advertisers understand what the value of that naming right might be and how you might word it so that it's not intrusive but it just flows well. You know, my hometown of Cincinnati, the Great American Ballpark, is just a tremendous example of um, of a, a name that just kind of slips in there without you even realizing it. Yeah, makes sense. Brad, you well, have a question. To weigh my two cents on that, I guess it all really goes back to uh, high salaries of athletes these days is really the bottom line that ultimately requires uh, bigger stadiums with uh, suites that can have high yeah. charges as well as seats that are very expensive to sit in and therefore the amenities of the stadiums today are required by the owners and therefore the cities are having to you know look for sponsorships to be able to afford to build these things on and on and on it's uh, but ultimately it's the high price of uh, I, I think you're really where it's all starting on. right yeah yeah I, you know if, if these these teams and stadiums didn't need the sponsorship i'm sure they'd go without but uh uh, they've been put in a place where the cost of producing a, a season of Major League Baseball is so great that it's just absolutely required. I think from a social aspect, too, as well as it relates to sports marketing, you know, the the, the fantasy football leagues, the fantasy leagues and such such like that were around uh, a lot uh, a long time ago, obviously, uh, many times before, uh, you know, we had anything that we even knew that we called social media. And in a roundabout way, it, it, that's kind of what it is, isn't it? Yeah, I suppose. You know, it's, it's it's just like sometimes people refer to cops as one of the first reality TV programs. We might think of fantasy sports as uh, one of the first forms of social media. I, I, I think you're exactly right. And, and certainly in the last few years, as it's become even easier to host a team, 
through fantasy sports uh, and through websites, uh, we, we've seen the interest in that grow even more so. You know, when it when it's not quite as much of a time commitment to to be involved in such a thing and keep track of such things. Right. Well, I think Alan Funk had the first uh, reality show with Candid Camera, <laughs> but we could go on and on here. Hey, let's go back to your research for a second. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, 52 countries, 27,000 consumers. Uh, I'm curious, let's talk a little bit, if you would, Nick, about the uh, how the global consumer lines up with the U.S. consumer uh, with regard to attitudes towards paying for online content. Is there a difference? Yeah, so it, it, there's a there's a pretty distinct difference that, that comes out in the paper, uh, and that is that North American consumers in general seem to be the cheapskates of the global population when it comes to paying for online content, at least in uh, how they're describing their interests. Uh, across the board, we see uh, U.S. consumers and North American consumers most inclined to say that the content should remain free, uh, that if I have to start paying for it, I'm going to stop using it. Whereas in other markets, we don't see quite as much uh, outrage at the, at the possibility of paying for content. I think that that has a lot to do with the, the developed nature of our online media environment. I think that we, we were quick to produce a, a worldwide web that was filled with content. Most of it was free, and we trained the American consumer and the North American consumer to be accustomed to that freeness. We kind of got ahead of ourselves a little bit before we let the economics play out and figure play out and figure out okay, what are the viable business models here, and so we've got a little bit of retraining to do of the North American consumer to say, well, you know, actually, if you, if you want to keep getting this high quality of a con- content, we're going to have to find other ways of monetizing this. That, that ad, ads alone are probably not going to support the quality of content that you're looking for. Nick Covey out of Chicago, director of Cross Platform Insights. At the Nielsen Company. I'm sure you've heard of them. Nick, uh, it's a pleasure to have you here on the Advertising Show. Welcome back. Thanks. Great to be here. That's been fun. Yeah, uh, there was a great question in your study. Well, of course, there were several great questions in your study, but one in particular. More importantly, great answers, too. Hopefully here. Uh, One that caught my attention uh, was the fact that uh, U.S. consumers, if they believed the quality of online content would decline, if companies were unable to charge for it, not in a statistical way, but just in a general sense, what did consumers have to say about this, Nick? Yeah, that's one of those where I wish that in a multi-language, 54-country survey, I had the chance to uh, do an open-ended and get it done and processed in some time, because we kind of have to read between the lines. But this is to the point that I was discussing earlier about there being some glimmers of hope in our study that consumers understand the economic trade-offs of media, that they still understand that someone's got to pay for it. And I think that we, we see that in, in, in the U.S. and in other countries where we ask that a majority of consumers understand that if I can't pay for content, if I don't pay for the content, and if nobody pays for the content, then probably it's not going to be as high quality of a content. And uh, they may be okay with that, which is one of the open-endeds I would have loved to ask. I'd like to get a better understanding going forward, and certainly a a subject we'll be looking at, as to what extent are consumers willing to uh, sacrifice quality of content for that cost. And probably what we'll see is that consumers will segment out. And just as websites need to create flexible models of monetization, we're going to have to have a better understanding of, okay, here's the segment of consumers who isn't going to pay anything ever for content, uh, but they have this value to advertisers. And then here's the value, here's the segment of customers who does have the cash and will pay for the high-quality content. But the catch is they don't want to see the advertising, and then how do we reach them? Because they're very likely going to be among the highest uh, prospect targets for advertisers as well. 
And it's going to just get real interesting and require a lot of segmentation that uh, this survey fails to get into, but hopefully our, our future ones will. Makes sense. You know, Ray and I have been talking for several years now here on the show about how we, as it lines up with what you said last segment, we as consumers uh, find it very difficult to receive something for free and then eventually be charged for it. I think that's the drug pusher business model, by the way. <laughs> but uh, And we as U.S. consumers, I think, will have uh, resistance and pushback to transitioning from what was once free to eventually... Uh, being charged for that, and I don't know what it is about others outside of the U.S. culture or business community, however you want to look at it, that would allow that kind of, uh, you know, it's free one day and the next day it's being charged for, to allow that kind of model to be something that's more readily accepted over there versus over here. Any sense for that? Why? Well, I, at, at times I wish I was a political science expert when looking at this data because I, I suspect that there are some distinct cultural differences in at least a number of those markets where um, more so than in the U.S., you might have to be accustomed to rules changing uh, pretty quickly and having to abide by them. Um, but moreover, I, I think that why we see a, a real pop in the U.S. unwillingness to pay for content that they've been getting for free is that we've just been getting a lot more of it. I, I, I have the sense that there has been such a, a wealth of, of content available to American consumers at no cost for, for many years now uh, that it is just the, the more and more we push that free content, the more and more they are reluctant to pay for it. And, and other markets yeah. that are just emerging in the digital media uh, sphere may not uh, ha- have pushed so much on consumers for free just yet. Well, we may run long this segment. I want to get your opinions on a few things here before we let you go, Nick. Uh, there's been a flurry of rumors flying around that Facebook is considering a subscription model for members to, to belong to its community. Again, while these are still just rumors, what do you think would happen if a, a Facebook-like social site, or for any that for any matter uh, for that matter, any uh, free social media site, began to start charging? for users to participate in their social social community. Any thoughts on that, Nick? Well, I think if, if a popular, any really popular site which starts charging for its content is going to immediately create competition, uh, there will be someone out there who creates or at least thinks they've created the right business model to provide that content and that experience for free. And so I think it'd be a, uh, it'd be a risky move for any site as big as Facebook to, to do that. Uh, but I think that there is there are sites such as Facebook, which people have grown so dependent upon, uh, that there will be people who are willing to pay. But what we found in our survey is that consumers said, if I do have to start paying now, uh, you know, I, I kind of think that, of this as, uh, won't you please, won't you please make that experience a little bit nicer? <laughs> uh, you know, do something for me to make it, you know, I'll go with you on this journey. I will consider paying you a subscription, but darn it, you better... Give me something else in return. You know, don't just turn the paywall on. I think that's a challenge for a lot of content providers. And if if a major social network were to start charging, they'd have to think, okay, what is the new application with which I can bring people along and have them actually start paying? Sure. And for someone like Facebook um, or any social network provider, what we're saying is that social networks are really becoming more and more of a content gateway for consumers. And so I can envision a world where social networks became more of a content gateway. And, and in doing so, provided access to certain degrees of content as part of a subscription cost. Um, there are other advancements in the social networking space, and, and I'm speaking entirely hypothetically, but 
things with the uh, location-based services that Facebook and others may, are looking into, I'm sure, where, where you'll actually be able to use your mobile phone, engage with your social network, and, and apply your, your geographical location to that and, and, and access information and friends based on where you are. There are already smaller players out there doing this, but that's an additional service for which some people may be willing to pay. Sure. Well, Nick, let me get your opinion on one final question before we let you go. Ben Elowitz, uh, co-founder of WetPaint, a platform for social web uh, sites, was quoted recently as saying, the traditional ways of judging quality and published content are useless in the digital age, although values such as credentials, correctness, objectivity, and craftsmanship are still sacred to many people. The problem is that there's simply not enough to, uh, it's simply not enough to win audiences these days, drive financial success, or for that matter, ensure viability. And he cites the example of uh, the demise of institutions such as Newsweek that uh, proves that the, uh, the point that he's wanting to make here about measures of success perishing unless they don't move to outdated measures for success, if you will. So do you think he's right, Nick? What are your thoughts on that? Well, there's no doubt about it. The the measures of, of quality have changed to include things like uh, time uh, of delivery and, and uh, geographical relevance of when I'm receiving that information. How quickly can I process the information or the content that you're delivering to me? These are these are things that uh, content producers even 10 years ago were not thinking about as much as as they were on just producing good content. But I, I, have, I guess what might be a fundamental disagreement and that I believe content is still king and, and, and content is still king by its quality. And I think that compelling content, there's still bundles of examples out in the, in the ecosystem today where people are still being drawn to high-quality content, high-production high content, uh, high-production cost content, and, and they're either paying for it or they're sitting through ads to watch that. I... Uh, I think that we do have to to think about how we evaluate the quality of media, and, and certainly Wall Street is doing this in in new ways. But uh, to say that that quality is is really not as much of an issue anymore in uh, pedigree, if, if you know, when it comes to journalism, uh, I take some issue with that. At the same time, there's no doubt about it. There's been a commoditization of news, and uh, and and people like Newsweek are are the unfortunate uh, losses of that that process. And so the strong survive there, Nick. Uh, Nick uh, Covey is our special guest, and we are unfortunately out of time. Go to, uh, to Nielsen.com, uh, and uh, you can find out more about uh, what they do, obviously, if you don't already know that. But uh, Nick, the director of Cross-Platform Insights at the Nielsen Company. It's been a pleasure having you here today, Nick. Ray, Brad, thanks very much for your time. It's been my pleasure. You know, it's always fun to bring you these encore shows. The advertising show has been around for quite a few years now. We've got a lot of great people that we've talked to over the years. Hope you enjoyed today's show. Tell a friend the advertising show is brought to you by Advertising Age magazine. Visit online at adage.com. The Advertising Show is a copyrighted Big Radio Midgets production, and we will talk to you again soon. Why do more media professionals read IWantMedia.com? IWantMedia.com features reports from industry leaders and media personalities. IWantMedia.com gives you quick access to news, stats, trade orgs, and industry publications, and it's updated daily. Forbes says IWantMedia.com contains everything media professionals need to stay ahead of the game. The Washington Post calls it the source for the serious media geek. Do you get it? If you don't, you should. To sign up for free daily email alerts, visit IWantMedia.com.